0: I didn't mean to make it such a mystery to, to some uh, that I was going to be preaching this morning. I uh, actually was intending to preach uh, next Sunday, uh, but was scheduled this Sunday. So uh, nonetheless, I, I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to stand before you to bring God's Word to you, as I always have. We have some of you visiting, and uh, I'm very thankful that you're here. I hope that you would open up the Word of God with us and tune in to what it has to say for each and every one of us so that we might grow closer to him. What I'm going to speak about this morning, we'll get to in just a minute, but to to start us off, I had a uh, faithful preacher who retired from preaching one time tell me the story of someone he met one time that um, asked him a question, well well just tell me how much preacher do I need to give up to to be a Christian? What do I need to let go of? What's the bare minimum that I have to share, or, or actually not share, get rid of to be a Christian? And the preacher uh, came back to him, talked to him, and said, well, if you've got that kind of attitude and have that question about the service of God, you've got the whole idea about the service of God wrong, because it's going to require your everything. It's going to require your all. That's what I want to speak about this morning. If, if we have something that's holding us and keeping us back from serving God, we need to let it go. Uh, this morning, in, in specifics, I want to talk about the idea of having pride. The idea of being prideful, if we have pride anywhere in our hearts, it is going to keep us from serving God. It is going to keep us from a relationship with God. We shouldn't have that association with pride. It is going to keep us. If we do have that association with pride, like we're talking about this morning, it's nobody else's fault. Our parents didn't teach us necessarily to have a prideful heart. Pride is something that each of us individually struggle with. Nobody else can blame someone when they stand before God at the end of this life and say, well, God, it's so-and-so's fault. I wonder how much, and and not that this was Adam's take on it, but I think we can see pride perhaps starting at the very beginning of God's Word in Genesis where Adam says, Lord, the the woman whom you gave me. I wonder how much of pride was involved with that statement when he went before God and blamed others rather than himself. He didn't come to the truth. He didn't embrace that, yes, I'm to blame, I was responsible, you gave me woman, and all this creation, and I sinned. That wasn't his response. His response was, you did this, somebody else did this, it wasn't me. We have nobody to blame but ourselves. We have no situation that caused our pride, and certainly is not the way that it needs to be. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, most of us know this passage and can uh, remember it, but if you would turn there with me, 1 John chapter 2. Three things mentioned here that I want to take note of really the the last statement that's mentioned there. Beginning in verse 15 of 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice those statements before we go any further. Don't love those things of the world. Don't embrace them and and give up on your soul and, and exchange everything else for the things in the world. It also says, if that love is in you, The love of God is not in you. Notice there with me the next two items. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of... uh, I'm sorry, the lust of the the flesh, the lust of the eyes. Those two things there have to deal with things that I see that I want to get. Worldliness, material, things that don't matter to my soul. That's what is being spoken about there as being part of that lust. The lust that I see from my eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, the things that I want to gratify my flesh with. But the third thing there, mentioned in verse 16, is the pride of life. Now, brethren and friends, that doesn't have to do with things that I want outside. That has to do with things that I already have. That has to do with things that I already possess, and I have in my my grasp that I want to say, look at me, look at what I've got. So that is from within, and you're broadcasting that to everyone around you when you have that pride of life. And look what it says there in verse 16 there. It's not of the Father. It's not of God. God did not give you that pride so that you may go and look, say, look at what I've got. It's of the world. Just as those statements we read in verse 15, the two don't go hand in hand. You can't have that pride of life and say you're a servant of God. Furthermore, we, we just talked about this, that that pride relates to the possessions. It's not of the Father, but it is of the world. You can't embrace that pride. You can't keep and hold on to that and say that you are of God. It's just not something that can be done. Look with me at a few examples of those in the Bible who dealt with pride, for instance. Uh, Brother Micah uh, has in depth, I think, in 1 Corinthians and also this morning, uh, for those of us who were out here in the auditorium, dealt with the Corinthians and how they couldn't let go of some things and how, how thankful that we have for us today that Paul dealt with those things as a Christian should and reminded them those are not of God. Look with me there at some of the things that the Corinthians dealt with. Chapters 1 through 3, Paul had to address that they were being divisive. On some accounts, they were choosing, as uh, philosophy taught them of that present world, that philosophers were these great people, and that I can say, well, I'm of Paul, and others could say I'm of Apollos, and others could say I'm of Cephas. And then Paul would ask the question is Christ divided? They were taking a moment of of pride in their lives to say, I'm of this one or I'm of that one. And division was resulting because they were simply choosing, well, you can go over there, but the one I'm clinging to is greater. That is not what the Lord is about. But the Corinthians had that issue. They had that problem. Also, association with fornicators. If you look there in 1 Corinthians, I'm I'm impressed that this word is there in chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But they were dealing with one who had a fornicator. And how were they dealing with that one? It says there in chapter 5, Look there with me at the beginning of the first verse. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And Paul says this should not be the case. Look there in verse 2. It says, and you are puffed up. That word puffed up there is, is prideful, boastful about their situation, having that one that was a fornicator amongst them, and they did not deal with it. And he says there, you're puffed up, having not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. So they had an instance of pride here where they were dealing with one who was sinful. They should have dealt with him according to God's word, but they were holding on to him, being proud that he was in their midst. It should not have been so. And also chapters 12 through 13, it also should include chapter 14 up there. I didn't put that up there. But the Corinthians had spiritual gifts that was power given to them by God. But yet they were misusing them and some were saying my gift is greater than this one or my gift was greater than that one. And Paul had to set, him straight, set all of them straight there and say no, the spiritual gifts are not to make you greater. They're to bring you closer to the Lord. And I, I'm thankful in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Paul says you have all things that could give you all knowledge to God, but it looked like they were misusing those things to puff themselves up, to be proud about what they had. That pride of life, the, the spiritual gifts they had turned into something arrogant and boastful. And Paul said, no, that should not be so. Furthermore, uh, Proverbs chapter 16 tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We see this quite clearly in several examples, but I'm going to list three here this morning. King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. If you'd like to, to turn there, I'm going to be looking at two occasions here out of Daniel. But King Nebuchadnezzar had stood before his kingdom and proclaimed, Look at all that I have done. Look at what I have brought together. There in chapter 4. And God would bring him down for being such. He says there in verse 30, the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of majesty? Isn't isn't this something I did? Look at what I did. He's professing to himself perhaps. I don't know that there's an audience around him, but he's taking in all that he's done. He's taking in all of the the view of his kingdom that he has built, he says, and says, "Look look at what I've done. Look at what I have acquired. And it says there in verse thirty one, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field, they shall make you eat like a grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he wishes or he chooses. God was telling him, I'm going to remove you from this that you think you built until you know that it wasn't you that built it. It was God. It was God that gave this to you for you to reign over to serve my purpose. So all that you have is going to be removed for a time until you can wake up and see that it's not yours. It's mine. And I choose to give it to whomever I wish. Turn with me now to uh, Daniel chapter 5. You see his son here, Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar, in uh, Daniel chapter 5, giving a big feast and looking at all around him in the kingdom. He has a writing on the wall that appears to him and he calls for all the people of the kingdom to bring to him the wisdom of what's been said. He wants to know. And Daniel is the one that brings him what the writing on the wall says. Down in verse 25 says, mini, mini parson, And he gives the explanation for that. But look there in verse 22. But you, his son, Belshazzar, there in Daniel chapter 5, have not humbled your heart. Although you knew this, it goes on to explain about his father and how his father was removed for a time because of the pride in his heart. Belshazzar should have known about that. He says, your father Nebuchadnezzar was removed because of this pride and you should have known it. But look what happens there in verse 23. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. That's a proud heart. That's an arrogant heart that says, look at what I've done. And Daniel brings him that message, you have been found wanting. It says there in verse 26, the interpretation of each word is Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tikel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And it says that very night, he was removed from power. So Belshazzar here was not continued because of his pride. He lifted himself up. A final ruler we see here who had great power in Acts chapter 12, we see Herod here giving a great oration. And the crowd there that's listening to him says, that is almost the voice of a God and not man. There in verse 23, we see the result there of what Herod has been saying in Acts chapter 13 gave the oration there in verse 21, and the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. In verse 23, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give give glory to God. And what a terrible death that he suffered there, eaten by worms, being sent by God, and he died. But for the simple fact of not giving glory to God, he took in that glory, he took in that pomp and that pride and accepted what the audience was saying, not correcting them, saying, no, God gave this but he took that pride in himself. All of these accounts of biblical pride, the Corinthians and now these rulers that we're seeing, they had to deal with pride, but look at what example they leave us. If you don't deal with this correctly, if you don't handle pride and shun it for the sake of God, you're going to result just like these. You're going to fall and you're going to be put in your place by God. That association with pride cannot be amongst Christians I'm not talking about the appreciation of the value of one's work. I think God's Word specifically deals with that, and I'll give you some references for that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, when Solomon is noticing everything that goes on in the world and tries to understand and study, what does it mean that we're here on this earth? Chapter 2, verse 24, when he's talking about the work of one's hands, he would say there that every man should enjoy the good of his labor, for it is from the hand of God. Also, chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, to rejoice and to do good in their lives has been given to man, that they should enjoy the good of all of his labor. It is the gift of God. Chapter 3, verse 22, that a man should rejoice in his works for that is his heritage. That means that's what God has given him to enjoy. Furthermore, chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, it's been given to a man to enjoy that. It says to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor for this is a gift of God. I'm not saying to look back and stand and say, I've been blessed to be a a producer of something that I brought forth. God has given me that ability. Notice the statements, each one that I just read from Ecclesiastes, is yes, you've been able to accomplish work. You've been able to produce. It may be your family that you've raised fine children unto the Lord and they're very blessed with wisdom. They're blessed with knowledge or they're smart. It may be that you've accomplished a great uh, uh, homestead for yourself and that you have several acres and that you've got a great farm. Or it could be a number of other things that you've achieved a a level of of work, a, a plateau that you never thought you'd reach. And you look back and you say, I've been blessed. Remember that it does come from God, and that is from God. It is not from just your own hands, but God has blessed you. I wonder if that's a test sometimes, that when we receive good, if God's not wanting us, and I believe it is, God wants us to give Him the glory, not us receive it. Not us receive that pride, but to give it to God and say, thank you, God, for these gifts you've blessed me all my life. That is the result that God wants. We look furthermore in the parable of the talents and... and, and from looking at this, whether or not it, it, it means one thing or another, the fact is there in Matthew chapter 25, verses 13-19, through 19, is that those servants of the kingdom were given those talents. And each one did something with them. They, they were given those talents by the one who went away on a far journey. And look at what each one did. Some uh, were given ten, and uh, they made more off of that. Some given five. But one was given one talent, and he did nothing with it. He didn't do anything with his abilities there. No, God gives us things that we uh, have in this life, and we're to use them for his glory. And finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, it speaks about those who are rich. Instruct them not to be haughty, but to give thanks to God, who gives to all richly, uh, I'm sorry, to, gives uh, us richly all things to enjoy. That God blesses us, riches that we have. That they're not from us so we should never get the idea that look what I did look what I built up and look what I have done myself but it should be look at God and his goodness and his mercy I have been blessed because of him that's the mind of the servant of God and there's nothing wrong in being thankful for what you have but furthermore being thankful to God for what you have should be the case so that's not the kind of pride or or, uh, the mindset of accomplishment that you have done you need to give thanks for that and you need to be thankful But don't tout your horn. Don't be proud of what you have accomplished and nobody else was able to because that's pride. Furthermore, James chapter four verse six, and we'll get to a few other points to to the rest rest of our lesson in just a moment. But trying to build up to this aspect of having an association with pride, that idea with pride there in James chapter uh, four. Sorry, we we uh, looked at that in just a moment. I'll go ahead and advance those slides. But James chapter 4, verse 6, the idea of God resisting the proud but giving grace to the humble. And also 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God deals with the proud in that way. He resists them. But you understand what that idea of pride is? If we had to translate or look at that word, it roughly means uh, appearing above others. And it comes from the root word. I find it fascinating. Hooper and pheno meanings to overshine. To shine over. So, so if I've got pride... If I've got the mindset that I am better than someone or that I'm good in this life because look at what I've done, let me tout my horn, then that's what God resists. That's the mindset that God says, no, I'm going to resist you on every front unless you're humble. Unless you come to me with the mindset knowing that I bless you and I bring you to where you are, you have no part. I appreciate the Lord saying there, Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, talking about the light of the world. He says to those who would have the mind of the kingdom, the heart of the kingdom, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And think about that with me for a moment just now. If we're talking about pride, and and that pride is letting our own light shine, shining our light, if the Lord says the characteristics of those in the kingdom are the light of the world, whose light are you shining when you have that prideful heart? Are are you shining your light? Because if you're shining your light, you're not shining the Lord's light. You're blocking out His for your own benefit, for your own gain, for your own pride. Because that's what this heart of pride is. It's overshining over everything else, over others, so that you are noticed. That's not the nature of the kingdom. That's not the nature of God's people. We cannot be about our own shining, our own glimmer, our own light. We're nothing but a vapor anyway. But God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who shines let us shine His light. Let us give His glory and remove from us any prideful heart that might come into play. Again, the statement here, and we'll proceed with our, the rest of our lesson this morning and our study, those in Christ cannot be associated with a proud heart. You can't boast, you can't be arrogant about yourself and what you have brought forth. Notice with me these aspects, and we're going to go into more detail here in just a moment. But the idea of pride and what it hinders, pride does not allow one to be humble. As a matter of fact, pride is the exact opposite. We just noticed that in James and also 1 Peter. We'll give more attention to that in just a moment. Pride will not allow someone to suffer loss. They would rather be prideful and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not giving up. That's a prideful heart, and that's going to keep you from being that servant of God. Also, submission cannot be had with one who is proud. One who has the boastful and arrogant heart, they're not going to submit. Look at all they've accomplished, and you're asking them to submit obedience. True obedience will not be had by those who are proud and arrogant. Those who have that heart that wants to shine about themselves rather than to obey what God's Word has said. And finally, we'll look at it this morning being selfless. Being selfless will not be allowed with the prideful heart. We'll not be allowed with one who has arrogance in their minds and in their hearts saying, look at me, I'm not going to go over there and be with that one. I'm not going to share in this one's deeds. I'm not going to go and do that. I'm going to keep myself, just not going to do it. Those kinds of attitudes are relationships that we have with pride that will keep us from being what God wants us to be. Let's look at that idea of Humility. Pride will not allow humility. Have you ever thought, when, when you compare pride and, and the prideful heart, have, have you ever heard of someone who was called a, 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 a proud, humble person? I mean, doesn't that contradict? I mean, it, it doesn't go together. You can't say, well, brother so-and-so over there, or, or my friend here, he, he's a proud, humble person. When truly you compare with the lens of God's Word, that the two don't go hand in hand. They can't have a relationship. So if you're proud, you're, you're not going to be humble. Or if you're proud, there are ways that you try to appear to be humble, but you're only deceiving others that might not know, and you're not deceiving God. You're trying to promote yourself. Look with me about the false humility there in Matthew chapter 6, and turn there with me in Matthew 6. Micah, again, I think last week or the week before, had mentioned this in one of his sermons uh, from chapter 5, 6, and 7. And the nature of the Pharisees there in Matthew chapter 5 and all that they did, that your righteousness must exceed the scribes of the Pharisees. This is one way. That that your righteousness ought not not to be about what you have achieved, what you have done, or what you're bringing forth to the table, but it must be about God. That's how one way your righteousness needs to exceed the scribes of the Pharisees. Look in there with me in Matthew chapter 6. Look there in verse 2 with me. Well, we could begin with verse 1, but for the sake of time, therefore, in verse 2, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. They're seeking to be honored. They're seeking to be puffed up by what men see of them. Don't do that, is what the Lord is urging. You can't have righteousness before God. He says don't do that as those hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. And then he would say at the end of verse 2, assuredly I say to you they have their reward that they have what's coming to them when they do that all they're looking for is their immediate glory then to be proud and puffed up in front of others and they have it they have what they want but you don't be that way you don't be that case trying to get glory amongst yourselves on the corners and in the synagogues. Furthermore, there in chapter 5, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. That's what they want, is to be heard broadcasting a prayer to God, to to be seen as holy maybe, to be seen as someone who's righteous, to, to say, look at me, look at how intent my prayer is, and listen to what I'm saying, how great of a man I am to God. But yet, it's false humility. It's not right. It's not something that is blessed and right before God. As a matter of fact, he says there at the end of verse 5, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They have what's coming to them then. They're not going to be blessed by the Father. Finally there in verse 16 as well, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to be men fasting Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Does your holiness that you're, you're bringing, is it so others may see it? Is it so others may say, look at how good of a person I am, look at how, how righteous I am, and look at how much God's going to give me? Because if it is, if you're touting your horn about what you do, if you're touting your horn about look at me, you've got the wrong attitude. Because your attitude needs to excel, excel that and exceed that. Of those who are hypocrites. They have their reward. Don't seek that kind of reward to get glory from people. Seek it to get glory from God who gives true glory and honor. Seek that. Don't let your righteousness be a false humility. Also, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I don't want to jump the gun. I know we're going to study about this later. But there in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Do we compare ourselves to others? Do we say, that guy looks like a fool? I'm glad I'm not like him. Uh, He's doing crazy things and I'm I'm just conservative. I'm I'm one who doesn't do those things, so I'm not going to associate with him. And there may be some interest that we need to take in how others act and how we don't need to be associated with that. But when we compare ourselves thinking that we're more righteous, there in chapter uh, 10 of 2 Corinthians, the whole chapter there, verse 10, basically... Is talking about how Paul is being looked at on his appearance, saying uh, that he is not one who um, is truly a servant of God. It uh, says there in verse 10, His letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. He, he looks nothing like his letters, and, and he can't back them up. These people who were saying, Don't worry about Paul, he's nobody. Look at us. We're here amongst you. Don't we look like somebody But Paul was saying there about those folks that would do that there in verse 12. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. We're not those kinds of people. We're not ones who say I'm of Christ but yet say look at me. And look at those crazy people over there. You know, I'm, I'm better than them. We're not of those people. We're not those who are proud and say I'm better, they're not. Do you have that kind of heart? Do you have the comparisons in your mind to say well... I know you're right, but, you know, still, I'm better than them. Do you have that heart? Because truly on a base level, like we talked about from Ecclesiastes, we are going to have to give an account of not just our actions, but our attitudes and our hearts before God, all things, whether open or in secret. What kind of heart do you have? Proverbs chapter 21, verse 4 Proverbs chapter 21 verse 4 says, A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. Also, Proverbs chapter 11 says, When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Truly the humble know their place. They're the ones that's wise because they know where they should be. But the proud, it says there, they ought to be ashamed. They get shame when they think they're someone when they're not. I didn't have on the screen before us also, but noticing what God thinks about pride in our hearts and how not being humble is against what He wants, Psalm chapter 101, verse 5 says, Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a hearty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. And furthermore, if you want to get the sense of how God looks at that who is proud and not humble, there in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 and 17 uh, the, the proverb will say, These six things the Lord hates, Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. The first thing on that list is a proud look. Someone who compares themselves and thinks, Look at me. I'm better. Look at what I'd have to offer. It is greater. That proud look is amongst those who have a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord amongst brethren. A proud heart is amongst those that God hates. Don't have that heart. Don't say, look at me, look at what I've done or accomplished. But again, going back to what we said, God gives us our abilities. God gives us the riches that we enjoy. Be thankful and glorify Him. Not us, not what we have. That is what God wants. Humility will please God. Being proud will not please God. Being proud, you have an association with the worldly, just as we read from 1 John chapter 2 earlier. That attitude comes from the world, but humility in the sight of the Lord is what God wants. Again, I'm referring back to James James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Don't lift yourself up before the Lord just as Belshazzar did and he was removed. He did that. Look at what came from that. You don't have that heart. Furthermore, the humility aspect, when you start comparing yourselves to others, look at what you're doing, you're not elevating them, you're not serving them, you're serving yourself, you're touting your own horn, saying, look at what I've done. That's not the mind of what the Lord wants. As a matter of fact, when the Lord says, if anyone desires to be first, let him be the servant of all. There in Mark chapter 9, verse 35. And consider when the Lord, in chapter 13 of John, when the disciples say, Lord, don't wash our feet. Uh, You are the one whose feet we should be washing. You're the good teacher. The Lord says, and I'm paraphrasing there, you say rightly that I'm a good teacher, but look at what I'm doing. I'm washing your feet. And if you know these things that I'm doing, blessed are you if you're doing them. He's not saying go about washing everybody's feet, but He's saying be a servant of all. You're blessed if you understand this because this is the nature of those in the kingdom those who are going to be great in my kingdom, they're going to be servants here on earth. And if you have a proud heart amongst you, if you have a proud heart about the way you see things, and you say, I'm better, look at what I've done, you're not going to have a part in the kingdom of heaven. Because the Lord said, be a servant. Don't consider yourself better, because really and truly none are without me. And look at my example. If I'm the one who makes a person better, I'm a servant. So don't have that proud heart. Don't have that look of pride because it will not work with humility. You can try to fool some. You can try to fool people who might see what you do and think, wow, that guy's a a godly person. But you're not fooling God. That prideful heart can't do that. Suffering loss as well. It's hard to suffer loss sometimes when we have a proud heart. When we say, I can't be going through this. How in the world is this happening? I'm not going to suffer. Somebody else is going to have to do it. Sometimes we can have that attitude. Those in God's Word that we read of, they had sometimes that same attitude as well. Pride will not allow one to suffer. Can you honestly imagine someone who is a proud sufferer, somebody who's able to lose, somebody who's able to let go of things, but they're proud. The two contradict. They cannot go together. The proud heart cannot suffer loss. They cannot surrender or suffer defeat. I submit to you, Uh, there with this idea of the Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus. They couldn't hear what Jesus had to say. They couldn't examine and listen and observe what He had to say because they were too steep in saying it's false, it's wrong. You know, He's doing good works, He might teach the right things, but we will not listen to Him. And the Pharisees, what did they do? They incited people to go against Him. Not just themselves, but they incited everyone else there around them the crowd there, Mark chapter 15, 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd against the Lord. Not only that, they stirred up false witnesses against the council seeking false testimony in Matthew chapter 26, verse 59. Even getting Pilate to put our Lord to death and to do their dirty work. They didn't want to have any part with him. They couldn't accept that their time of rule and authority was ended and God was bringing about the new kingdom. They couldn't accept that. That same heart sometimes, it, it lives in us. That we, we can't let go of reality, or we can't let go of, of the things that we think are our reality, but they're not. We can't lose. We can't afford to lose sometimes. But that kind of heart should not be in us. We must sometimes suffer things. We must sometimes suffer defeat for our Lord. That idea of being desirous to be the victor all the time, like the Pharisees. That's the kind of prideful heart we need to avoid. Jeremiah chapter 21. If you want to look there real quick, I'm going to briefly go over that. But here Jeremiah was telling the children of Israel, your time has come. Your time's up. No more are you going to be in peace, but you're going to be taken away. Look what Jeremiah tells them there. They actually come to Jeremiah. when Jer- The word comes to Jeremiah in verse 1. which uh, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord there in chapter 21, verse 1. When Zedekiah sent to him Peshur, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, saying, Please inquire of the Lord for us, For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to His wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. So they were wanting to to have the king Nebuchadnezzar, they knew God's mighty hand, to have king Nebuchadnezzar go away and not overtake them and lead them away captive or destroy them. So they wanted to know what the Lord had to say. And and it seems as though they were willing to submit to what God had to say and, and went along with whatever God had to say. It seems as though that's the case. So Jeremiah says to them there, continuing on, Thus you shall say, Zedekiah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls. I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of the city. And so on he goes and tells them, This wickedness will come on this city. But Jeremiah here also tells them that if you go and not suffer violence, but give yourselves into the king of Babylon, you will not be destroyed. And that reference is a little later down in chapter 21 or 22. I can't uh, find it amongst my notes here, What I should have brought forth. But their attitude was not to where they were wanting to know the word of God. They were wanting simply peace and for the king of Babylon to be taken away and destroyed. They did not want to give up ultimately. We see Jeremiah later on in chapter 28. They didn't want to hear what he had to say anymore. They lowered him down into the mire in prison and kept him there and treated him spitefully. But it looked as though their attitude was that they really wanted to know God's word and what was going to happen if God was going to be for them and help them. Well, he said he would. He said he would not lead them into captivity if they would give themselves up. That idea about suffering loss. That idea about being able to let go of some things that are going to keep us from life. Can we as Christians suffer that sometimes? Do we have that kind of heart that would keep us from suffering simply because we don't want to suffer? We don't want to endure and we don't want to have to go through hardships. Do we have that inability to admit defeats? In Luke chapter 16, I want to bring out the point there also about the rich man and Lazarus. Now you may not see the correct connection right off, but this man who was unwilling to give up, he was a rich man. Look there with me in Luke chapter 16. Beginning at verse 19, we'll read that first verse. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. In the verse 20, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And it speaks about the dogs going and licking up his sores But at the end of both of their lives, their situation was different. The rich man, it appears, he goes to torments there in verse 24 and cries to Lazarus, please help me, I'm tormented in this fire. Look what Abraham says to him in verse 25. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he's comforted and you are tormented. He should have done more. He should have been able to to at least be willing to give the crumbs from his table to Lazarus, to give something. But he fared sumptuously and didn't have regard for Lazarus. Furthermore, Luke chapter 18, if you want to turn over there with me, I think the the chord that I'm trying to strike here in Luke chapter 18, notice this rich man that the Lord is speaking with, uh, that says a a certain ruler. He has great possessions, we'll read of in just a minute. But he asked the Lord there in verse 18 of chapter 18 in Luke, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord says, no one uh, is good but one that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, not steal, etc. And this man says, yes, Lord, I know them, I've kept them from my youth. And when Jesus heard these things, he said, you still lack one thing. One thing that would have kept him from uh, inheriting eternal life from being right in God's eyes. And what was that thing? Sell all you have, it says there in verse 22, and give to the poor, distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So, so this man, all he had to do, he, he'd been keeping every commandment, he said, from his youth up, and he knew about them, and he was doing it. And he said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord says, give up this one thing. But he couldn't do it. At least we don't read of him doing it. It says there in verse 22, but when he heard this, he, he became very sorrowful. He was very rich those of us who think we're something who think we've got stature let us be careful we need to be willing to give up that mindset of saying look at me look at what i have because that will keep us from inheriting eternal life the ability to to give up the ability to and i'm not going to point out specifically you need to give up in this area you need to give up in that area but having the heart to resist. I'm not not selling this. I'm not giving up. Think of someone who's going bankrupt. They're not able to give up worldly possessions to save from going bankruptcy. They'd rather suffer loss and suffer the bankruptcy and and the loss of other things rather than just give up momentarily riches or or things that that don't matter in the end. Are we like that? Or do we have an ability to say, yes, Lord, whatever it is I'm going to give up, even my pride, even the things that, that I take pleasure in, consider Gideon here in Judges chapter 7 and I'll just bring before you the story I'm sure you've heard most of it have uh, heard before but Gideon here started out with 30,000 men and then it dwindled to 10 and then God still dwindled the army down to 300 eventually Uh, an army a force of of 300 men going out to another great army to attack and, and deliver the children of Israel from them. Can you imagine uh, Could you imagine the mindset of Gideon there when he's having his army dwindled down and whittled down to, from, from 30,000 to 300? What might have been going through his mind? I don't know. But what would be going on in your mind when you see God whittling away, saying, you must give up this, you must give up that? Remember the, the question I, I started off with when the man asked, how much do I need to give up to serve the Lord? What do I need to let go of to be a servant of god it's going to take your all are you willing to give everything up consider the chastening there in hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 of the lord the lord chastens his children is what that passage there speaks about but look there in hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 and you'll see when it's speaking there about my son do not despise the chastening of the lord There in verse 7, if you endure the chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Sometimes it is chastening that we have to submit to, that we have to be willing to give up because we're enduring it. But God wants better from us when we do that. If we have to give up temporarily things on this earth for His glory and to be in His kingdom, then so be it. Consider the, the prayer that the Lord said when He was teaching the disciples there in Luke chapter 11, verse 12, when He's saying, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That same statement He mentioned there about Thy will be done, not mine. He mentions when He's about to go to the cross that night in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, when He says, Lord, if it's Your will, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, Thy will be done. Sometimes when we suffer, we have to give up. And that's what God wants, so that we can be closer to Him. Are we willing to? Are we willing to give up some of the smaller things, or do we hold on to them with a proud heart saying, I'm not, I'm not letting go of that? What kind of heart do you have when it comes to that? Submission. And this is different from suffering loss. When you consider submission, God wants us to be one who submits to Him. Have you ever heard of someone who is submissive but proud? Well, they, can, they can submit to the lowest thing, but boy, they're a proud person. Those two things do not happen. They cannot exist together, but when you're a proud person, you have a relationship with that pride and association that's keeping you from submitting yourself. The proud heart is unable to submit to another way, they're unable to see that they need help. Just like the church in Revelation chapter 3, that church there said, We have need of nothing, we're okay. And I'm paraphrasing there in Revelations 3. But turn there with me and notice what the Lord said to them. When this church could not see their problems and their issues, they still needed more. And they couldn't see it. They were the lukewarm church, it says there. The Lord said, I'm going to spit you out because you're neither hot or cold. He says there in chapter 3, verse 17, because you say I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and that I have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy a fire for me, gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. The Lord is the answer there. When you think you don't have need of anything, when you think that I don't need to submit to anything, I don't need to bow myself. I'm fine just as I am. Do you have that heart? Or are you willing to consider that, yes, you may be wrong and that you may need to change, You may need to submit to removing something from your life? Also, uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13, the Lord would condemn the Israelites there for two things: that they have forsaken God there in verse 13, and that they have built for themselves cisterns that cannot hold water. Things that would not profit them, they've gone after. They didn't think that they needed anything, but that they could go forward and find other things. Having a submissive heart to what God has to say and not going out finding your own solution, not going out and finding the own way to to be pleasing to God, but seeking Him out according to His way, that's true submission. That's giving yourself over to God, and that's what He wants. Being submissive will please God having that heart that submits to Him who judges righteously. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Also, chapter 5 and 6 of Ephesians would begin with, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then children, obey your parents for this is right in the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 1. And then He would talk about servants, obey your masters in all things. Not being men-pleasers, but pleasing to God. And then also, masters, be good to your servants. Submitting takes being without pride, not having that heart that says me, but know what you will, God, what you want. That is true submission. Again, the idea there about our Lord saying, thy will be done, not mine. I will submit to what you want. The proud heart will not allow that. Also, another thing is obedience. The proud heart will not obey. The proud heart will be the one who says, I don't have to listen necessarily to everything that this says. Have you ever pictured a proud obedient person? The two don't go hand in hand. The proud will not obey for their own good. They think their way is best. And we could go on and look at every one of these uh, passages here, but I want to speak of them briefly if you want to write them down and look at them. But 2 Kings uh, chapter 5 verse 8 would speak about those there that were not able to give up, were not able to submit to God's will. Naaman is one here in 2 Kings chapter 8 who thought the rivers of the far far and the Euphrates were far better than the Jordan. But Elijah said, First, come here to me and I will tell you what you do. And Elijah did, or Naaman did go, but then Elijah uh, told him to go and wash. And Naaman said, Are you serious? I have to do that. I have to obey this. I could do better back in uh, the land where I'm from. But he did that. He submitted himself in obedience, and look what happened. He was healed. Also, think of salvation elsewhere. The Jews there, when they weren't willing to see that the Lord was the one that Isaiah spoke about, they they didn't regard Him as who He was. They didn't consider Him as the Lord, but they rejected Him. In the Galatians as well, there Paul warned them, I marvel that you so soon turn away from Him who has called you to another gospel, which is not another. You're turning to something that can't save you. You're not obeying the Lord, but you're obeying something else. How many religious people do that in the world today? They don't obey the will of God, but they obey others obedience and pride don't go together. But being an obedient soul will please God. Be slaves to righteousness. Romans chapter 6 verse 6 through 18 say, whatever you're a slave are, that you're going to obey. Don't be a slave to obeying other things but God's will. Obey Him and do what He says. <clears throat> Look at our Lord in the example that he left there from Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 that, that He humbled Himself, being obedient even to the point of the cross, even to death. That's the idea that we must have also. Whatever it is, I need to be willing to shut aside for God's Word and obey what He has to say. I need to put aside my pride, and I need to be obedient to His Word. Finally, being selfless. This is a hard one as well for those who are proud, because they have their own things, they have their own way of doing things. Why should they have to go and help others? That's not the mind of Christ. Have you ever considered a person that is proud but selfless? Again, those two people, or that same person, doesn't exist. They're two different people. They don't go hand in hand. If you're associated with pride, you can't be selfless. Pride will not let one be selfless. Pride will not let one humble themselves and go and help others when they're in their time of need, or simply do good because God has said it. They cannot deny themselves. Galatians chapter 5 would speak about this as well. We'll turn there real quick and read from that. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21, the works of the flesh being evident there. If you walk in the Spirit, he says there in verse 16, 19, the works of the flesh are evident adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. And we can go and read the rest of those. That is an idea about myself and pleasing me, not giving those things up. That's a worldly mind. Again, what we saw that that is of the the world and not the Father from 1 John chapter 2. That mindset that continues in those things but yet there are some in the religious world to say, that's just who I am. I'm, I'm not able to give myself up with that, so that's just a part of me. No, the Lord says give that up because that's part of the world. It's not part of God. One who can't also consider others uh, and doesn't uh, consider those who need something are those who are prideful and cannot submit to God's Word. In 2 Timothy there, chapter 3, verses 1-9, through nine, speaks about those who are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, holy. Again, the whole mindset of this is a worldly mind and I'm not able to give it up. That's just who I am. That is not what God commands us to be. But he wants us to be selfless and give those things up for his sake, to not be proud, to not hold on to those things. I believe it's an association with pride when we're not willing to give up those kinds of sins that hold us to the earth rather than push us toward God and pull us closer to His kingdom. Be selfless, because that is what pleases God. Being that selfless one who's able to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ as it says there in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. And also that whole string that was brought up earlier in Matthew chapter 5 about loving your enemies, boy, that takes a selfless measure. Are we capable of loving our enemies? Or, or does pride say, I'm not going to the one who's done me harm. I wish they died. I wish that their life would end. I'm not going to help them. That's not the selfless mind. But the selfless mind is willing to love your enemies, do good for those who persecute you. And it says there at the end of chapter 5 in verse 48, be perfect like your Father who's in heaven. That's what the Lord's calling to, to give up that pride that would keep you from even loving your enemies. That takes a selfless measure to love your enemies, but that's what God requires. Give that pride up. And also... Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where the Lord says, He who wants to follow after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. Consider the examples of the Lord and all that He suffered and went through. He was selfless. Are we able to be that way? Are we able to be humble and not proud are we able to suffer loss and let go of things are we gonna hang on to them and be a proud person saying I'm not giving up on that are we gonna be able to submit to God's Word and to submit to his will doing the things that he asks are we going to be obedient to what he says and do it regardless of the cost are we willing to suffer and be selfless all of these things you need to consider and many more that I didn't cover for the sake of time but ask yourself where's your heart Do you suffer from pride? And is it keeping you from doing God's will? Let it go. Because again, what the cost is, is everything. Everything that says you and does not say I'm of the Lord, it's proud. It's arrogance and you puff yourself up and you shouldn't. Hold on to those things. Let it go. If it is that you know you need to obey the word of God, that you need to humble yourself to it, that you need to to suffer the loss of of giving yourself up and to submit to His word, be selfless now. Come forward and, and... Ask for those waters of refreshing, hearing what you have that the Lord has to say and obey His Word. Come now if you need to make your life right with God as we stand and sing.